When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the show. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you so much for being here. We have a great show lined up for you tonight. Two guests will be with us tonight, one in each hour. In the first hour, we'll be talking with Dr. Kent Hovind. He is a creation science evangelist. He's going to talk about his theories on dinosaurs, the Great Flood, and other biblical stories. And then in the second hour, Kieran Woodhouse is a paranormal investigator, and he's author of a book called An Introduction to Paranormal Investigation. And it breaks down the type of equipment you may want to look at for ghost hunting and what he believes spirits really are. Plus, he'll talk about some of his paranormal experiences. So a nice combination of topics for you tonight as we get through hump day here in another week. Uh, Looking forward to uh, autumn, although I'm not looking forward to saying goodbye to summer. That's kind of a... Kind of a contradiction, isn't it? I love autumn weather, and we kind of have that in the Northeast right now. It's cool at night, warm, but not too warm during the day. Humidity's kind of gone. It's all good stuff. Um, but it doesn't last long, sadly. Uh, if we look ahead to what we've got coming up on the show in the next uh, few shows here, tomorrow night, John Sumple will be with us. He is the producer of an upcoming film called Extraordinary, The Seeding. It'll discuss reproduction experiments carried out as part of an alien hybrid breeding program. That sounds ominous. Friday, of course, is a best of show, as every Friday is. Monday, Rob Young will be here to talk about the cloud warriors of Peru, poisons from the jungle, and his own paranormal experiences. He's an author and an adventurer. Maybe he'll be able to comment on these wildfires in the Amazon rainforest. There seems to be some contradictory information about the severity of those And maybe it's just a political ploy. I don't know. Uh, But uh, looking ahead, because this is really exciting. Um, I know Slick Eddie and Orion have worked very hard to get a guest to talk about Lyme's disease and the possibility of Lyme's disease being some type of a biological weapon gone wrong. Well, Tuesday night, we've got Chris Newby joining us. Chris is a science writer, and she will shed new light on the genesis of Lyme disease And it's Cold War origins. That alone tells me this is going to be a bumpy ride when we have this conversation Tuesday night with Chris Newby. Um, We're going to go to break right away here because we do have two guests to fit into the show tonight. So we're going to need all the time we can get. So um, stay tuned because our first guest tonight will be Dr. Kent Hovind. And we'll be talking about creation and theories on dinosaurs, the Great Flood, and other biblical stories. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Look out, Rochester. Scaricon is coming for you. The Northeast's leading fan convention for all things pop culture is celebrating its ninth year at the Rochester Riverside Hotel, October 18th through the 20th. Scaricon brings an amazing group of celebrities, panel discussions, film screenings, great vendors, and amazing parties. It's a weekend of fun from start to finish, and it's family-friendly. For more information, visit Scaricon.com and check us out on Facebook. Use the promo code BRR at checkout to save 20% on your Mission. That's Garacon.com, October 18th through the 20th in Rochester, New York. Tonight we're going to be talking about a, a topic that can be a little controversial, but it's very, very interesting nonetheless. And our guest tonight, Dr. Kent Hoven, um, is a creation science evangelist. Ken, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's an honor to have you here tonight. Well, thank you, sir. It's good to be with you. So I don't want to mischaracterize your position on what we're going to talk about, so I'm going to let you tell us um, what is a creation science evangelist, and what exactly are we going to talk about tonight? Well, it's not controversial at all. Uh, the Bible teaches very clearly that God made the world in six days, and that's what I believe. I taught high school science and math for 15 years. I believe the Bible is literally true. The earth is about 6,000 years old. God made it in six days. And dinosaurs 
lived with Adam and Eve. They did not live millions of years ago. And the evolution theory is the dumbest and most dangerous religion anybody's ever thought of. Is that controversial? <laughs> well, I, I, I think there are probably those that would say it is, and there are probably those that okay. would vehemently disagree with that position. I'm not saying I'm one of those at all. I'm just saying that obviously you know you wouldn't have to be an evangelist about this if, if, if everybody accepted it. Um, you know, since the late 19th century, there's been a real shift. I think prior to Darwin, we had, um, you know, very few questions about where we came from. And then uh, this whole concept of evolution was introduced to us. Uh, And a lot of people take it as science, as complete, settled science. What's your position on it? Well, science deals with things we can observe, study, test, and demonstrate. That's what I taught for 15 years. Um, There is no observation or demonstration of any animal or plant ever producing anything other than its same kind. Cows produce cows, dogs produce dogs, corn produces corn. There are no exceptions to that. So if somebody wants to believe that uh, you know cows and corn are related, that's fine. They can believe that if they wish, but that's not science. So what's happened, I've done 180 debates now, with 184 with evolutionists. Um, they, they take evidence for what we often call microevolution as variations within the same kind, and then extrapolate it in their little brain to think, well, hey, if we can get, you know, Great Danes and Chihuahuas from a common ancestor, that's proof mosquitoes and whales are related. It's just insane. that They're, they're using, they're, they're confusing the terms microevolution and macroevolution as if they're the same, and there's no connection. I don't think we should even use the word microevolution. I think it's a, a misnomer. Well, but I, you know, I just, sorry to interrupt here, but I just want to clarify a point from my perspective here. I, I've always thought that natural selection and evolution are two very different things. Natural selection being the mechanism by which a weak member of a species may not, may not be able to reproduce, therefore that inherent trait won't continue in the species. But evolution, where one species develops from another species, is something completely different. you agree with that? Well, natural selection certainly works, but just like the name says, it's a selection process. I think if, if, if I wanted you to select... Uh, among all of the available elephants, and I want you to keep selecting color changes until you get an orange one. Well, you're you're never going to get one. There's none available. So nature can't select the orange ones to survive. There aren't any orange ones. It can only select what's available in the already existing gene code. So natural selection does great at 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 selecting. So you might want to, in a cold climate, nature would select the dogs with thicker fur to survive, uh, and produce more offspring, whereas in a hot climate, nature would select those with thicker fur would probably die off. And you'd end up, after, if you turned all the dogs in the world loose in Alaska, after about 10 years, they would all look like huskies or wolves, long hair, thick body, uh, because that's the body style that survives best in Alaska. Now, Alaska didn't create that. It selected the body style from an already existing gene code. So nothing was created. That's not evolution. It's a variation of the, of the already existing gene code that was naturally selected. And so they look at the evidence for natural selection, which certainly happens, happens all the time, and then say, see, this proves we all came from a mosquito, came from an amoeba, <laughs> which is just plain stupid. It's not true at all. What made you um, start on this path? At what point did you look at this and what was going on around you and decide you decided you need to, needed to uh, champion this cause? Well, when I was 16 years old, uh, 50 years ago, I, I invited Jesus Christ into my heart to be my Savior. I became a born-again Christian and started reading my Bible. Now, I was raised in a family of engineers and teachers. Uh, my dad was an engineer at Caterpillar Tractor Company. My mom was a public school teacher. My older brother became a mechanical engineer, and my second brother became a public school teacher. And so um, that was just our mentality. We always liked to experiment and do things and uh, uh, check things out. And so when I became a Christian, uh, right away I was faced with a conflict of reading my Bible, which clearly says God made everything in six days. Uh, You know, that's part of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. In six days, the Lord made everything. Well, that would mean dinosaurs had to live with man. And yet I was being taught in school that dinosaurs lived millions of years before man got here. So I quickly realized, as a 16-year-old, somebody is lying. I don't know who it is yet, but somebody is definitely lying about all this. 
and I'm going to get to the bottom of it. So it it began a long study of mine. It took me about 10 years, I guess, to finally come to the conclusion, okay, I think the textbooks are simply wrong. And I began really doing research on especially the topic of dinosaurs. You know, our our website is drdino.com. You know, even our phone number, 855-BIG-DINO. We like dinosaurs around here. We're building Dinosaur Adventure Land in Lenox, Alabama, population 35, <clears throat> straight north of Pensacola, <laughs> and it's having a blast. So that began uh, a long study of mine. <clears throat> so while I was teaching school, <clears throat> I was some water. <laughs> uh, fa- yeah, I'm sorry. I was faced with the conflict of, you know, somebody's wrong here. The textbooks are simply lying. And I've got a long video series on just lies in the textbooks. Short answer, when I moved to Pensacola back in January of 89, an article came out in the newspaper. I'd only been in town a couple weeks, and the paper said, dinosaur bones found in Montana from 80 million years ago. And I wrote my first ever letter to the editor, and I said, dinosaur bones are not 80 million years old. They're about 4,400 years old. They probably drowned in the flood in the days of Noah. And they published my letter and started a war in Pensacola. I ended up getting invited to do a debate at the University of West Florida, my first ever debate. And uh, that led to people, churches and groups and school groups saying, well, hey, would you please come share this information at our group? And so it very quickly, I guess that would be a good use of the term evolved, very quickly evolved into a, a full-time ministry, which I've been doing ever since, traveling and speaking, defending the Bible as being right and the evolution theory as being, well, stupid, for lack of a better term. You um you said the textbooks were lying. Is it a case of lying, or is it a case of a misinterpretation of the data? I think it's deliberate lying. They are they are teaching that the baby growing inside the mother, the embryo, human embryo, has gill pouches or gill slits. A guy named Ernst Haeckel made up that idea back in eighteen sixty nine. He was looking desperately to find some kind of evidence for Darwin's theory because he loved Darwin's theory, which had come out ten years earlier. And so he, 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 nobody found any in 10 years. Nobody found any evidence. So he lied and made up. He made drawings of a human and a fish and a dog all having gill slits growing inside the mother. Five years later, 1874, the other embryologists of the day said, hey, Ernst, you are lying. This is not true. You're not gill. They have little folds of skin. You have folds of skin in your elbow, too. You can't breathe through them. This is, he, he was lying. So... He finally confessed, he actually had a trial at his university, University of Jena in Germany, and he confessed that he faked the drawings, and he had lied. But they're still using those exact same drawings yeah. in textbooks today. I mean, 140 years ago was proven wrong. Come on, get up to date. That's a lie. It's not, there, there are no gill slits on the human embryo. They're going to say in the textbooks today that you have a vestigial tailbone. You don't need it anymore, and that's proof we used to have a long tail. Well, that's simply a lie. There are five little bones called the tailbone and with nine little muscles that attach to them. Without with those muscles and those bones, you cannot perform some very valuable functions. I won't tell you what they all are, but you can Google it and say, oh, wow, I don't want to lose those. So, <laughs> <laughs> they're not vestigial. They're simply lying to the kids. So I went through a series on my YouTube channel, Kent Hovind Official, of 75 lies in the textbooks. We did that last uh, November, December, I think. And I'll probably redo that in a video series. But um, I love science. I'm not against science. But there are some lies in the books that need to come out. Uh, when I spoke at the Arkansas House Representatives uh, Committee that was selecting textbooks, I went through about 30 of the lies in the textbooks that they were considering buying. And <clears throat> when I got done, this woman who was an ACLU lawyer, she got up and she said, well, if you take these lies out of the books, what are we going to replace it with? I said, you got to be kidding. You're telling What you're trying to not say is, this is all we've got is evidence for our theory of evolution, and you're, you want to take these th- our evidence away, so you got to find more evidence. I said, man, I don't believe your theory of evolution. I don't have to find any evidence for it. The textbook should be accurate. End of story. If you don't have evidence for your theory, I'm sorry. Get a new theory. That's the way science works. What's the, what, yeah, no, it's a great point. But what is the point of lying about this? Why, um, why would any of these folks who would be arguing the evolution side of this discussion, why would they want to lie about it to begin with? 
Well, I think many of them don't realize that what they're teaching is is a lie or has been proven wrong. Some do, though. I, I've done 184 debates, like I said, and some completely realize. See, evolution is the foundation philosophy behind socialism, communism, Nazism, Marxism, a whole bunch of the government uh, philosophies. The guys who started this country in uh, 1776, uh, uh, they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain rights. So the question really is very simple. Where do rights come from? Do you have the right to drive a car? Do you have the right to get married? Or do you have to buy those rights from the government? It's a really a, it's a, it's a question of patriot, uh, patriotism uh, versus communism. Under communism, you have, rights come from government. And yeah. evolution is the foundation philosophy behind communism. And so I think there's a, there's a political, and, and with that, a great financial incentive to teach evolution, because it, it, that's what grows big government. It, it ties in directly. I cover that on video number five of my series on the, how evolution is the foundation philosophy. It's essential for communism. Communism falls apart without evolution theory, because if the people believe they're, they're created by God, they might throw the tea in the harbor and start a big war again. And I think you've used the word communism several times in that answer, um, but I, I think it extends beyond that. It's, it's any kind of government control, not just communism. Right, but that's a classic example people can quickly recognize. Like, wow, that's true, you know? Yeah. Who, um, who gives people the right to get married? Do you have to get a license, which comes from the word licentious, mm -hmm. from the government to get married? Well, that, that's a fair question. And, before, you know, we don't, we don't need to get into all those details. You can chase that rabbit you like. But it goes back to the basic underlying philosophy of who decides. Right. Who makes the decision about who you can marry? Is that, is that something the government should be involved in at all? Um, let's back this up a little bit. If the Earth isn't, what is the number that science has been giving us, 4.2 billion years old? Is that the right. number? If it isn't 4.2 billion years old, how old is it? Well, the Bible dates that up to about 6,000, uh, which is an awfully long time. I mean, it's hard to think about Columbus 500 years ago trying to find this place. So you know, 6,000 is a really long time. Uh, and 4.6 billion is simply beyond human. Uh, your brain can't absorb those big numbers. So that's how they hide it, I think, in the big numbers, like as if, oh, wow, almost makes it true. If I told you if you kiss a frog, it'll turn to a prince, you'd say, no, come on, that's a fairy tale. But if we say, well, if you wait billions of years, your frog will turn to a prince. Oh, now it's modern science. <laughs> it's still a fairy tale. <laughs> Frog's not going to turn into the prince no matter how long you give it. So, yeah, the current the Bible teaches 6,000, and there are probably, oh, maybe 100 different scientific indicators that the Earth cannot be billions of years old. Some of those indicators, like the spin of the Earth or the magnetic field declining or the oceans getting saltier, or there's a number of uh, geophysical factors uh, that indicate we're not billions of years old. And we can go through those if you'd like. Um, yeah, let, let's go through a couple of them. <clears throat> well, pretty obviously the Earth is spinning. We're turning around once a day. But the Earth is slowing down a thousandth of a second every day. Uh, that's intuitive. Any spinning object, would, you know, you would think, hey, it's got to be slowing down. We know why, too. The, the tides wash up and down on the beach. Well, the ocean are pretty heavy, and that, that tide hitting the beach every six hours and 12 minutes, um, high tide, low tide, makes, makes a breaking action, pushing against the crust of the earth, which slows it down. There's also an internal friction with the liquid magma inside the earth rubbing against the underside of our crust, and there's also the winds pushing against the hills called the Coriolis effect. But <clears throat> between the, the, the wind and the tide and the magma, just those three, they, they create a braking action that is measurable, and the Earth slows down a little bit every day. That's why every year and a half or so, they have to add a second to the clock. They call it leap second. You can Google it, you know, leap second, because the <laughs> clocks are off by a second because the Earth is slowing down. Okay, well, obviously, if the Earth is slowing down, that means it used to be going faster, <clears throat> which would raise two questions. How fast can you go before you start to create a problem? If you go back in time, you know, imagine you can't go back in time, but if you could imagine going back, adding a thousandth of a second every day to the spin of the Earth, would that eventually create some kind of, you know, major problem? Like, 
winds of hurricane force at 300 mile an hour like Jupiter has, you know, because of its rapid spin. Jupiter spins around once every 10 hours or so. So it has incredible wind patterns that would kill everything on Earth way before you get that fast. And plus, you got a question of where did this initial spin come from? Why is the Earth spinning at all? And if it's slowing down, it's got some kind of time limit, and you cannot go back 4.6 billion years with the observed rate of the Earth losing spin. It's losing its momentum, <clears throat> which would, you know, be intuitive. Of course, it's losing its everything. Every spinning object would eventually slow down. Unless you got 100% frictionless, I don't know how you're going to do that. Right. There is there is friction with the wind and the water and the the, the magma inside. So it is plus the magnetic field. I could think create some kind of drag. I forget the name of that, uh, but it, it's creating a drag, slowing the Earth down. That's one of about a hundred geophysical factors that say, guys, I'm sorry, you might need billions of years to turn your frog to a prince, but you can't have it not on the Earth anyway. Um, the Earth is slowing down. The oceans are getting saltier. <clears throat> Every day, rivers run into the ocean. You know, billions of gallons of water goes into the ocean through the rivers. And it brings with it what's called mineral salts that wash out of the soils. Uh, rivers have a very slight salinity content, dragging mineral salts out of the soil uh, into the ocean. Well, the ocean is a giant distillation pond, and the sunlight draws the water out up into the clouds, but it only draws out your water, uh, dist di it distills it. Well, you know, you can boil water on your stove and distill it down, same way. Only this is a huge on a worldwide scale. Well, at the rate that oceans are gaining salt, today the oceans are only 3.6% salt. Uh, and at the rate they're gaining salt from the distillation process, they cannot be billions of years old. And I go through in my video series, which you can get on drdino.com, D-R-D-I-N-O, Video number one, I go through about oh, 40 different ways to prove the Earth cannot be billions of years old. The population today is 7.4 billion people. Uh, well, back in the year 2000, just 19 years ago, it was only 6 billion people. Back in the year 1800, just 200 years ago, it was only 1 billion people. We went from 1 to 7.4 in 200 years. You go back to the year 1600... The Earth's population was a half billion. You go back to the time of Christ, 2,000 years ago, it was a quarter of a billion. You, you plot all the points on a graph, and it shows that man's human population, man's only been here about 4,500 years. You could easily, from eight people getting off of Noah's Ark, you could very easily generate a population of 7.4 billion in, in less than 5,000 years. Let's um so yeah let's just let's jump to our, our no it's okay let's jump to our listener line uh, this is Barry in Rock Hill South Carolina hey Barry welcome to the show hello JV things cool there in Cooperstown it's cooled down a little bit Barry yes it has no problem uh, listen for Kent I'm a retired biochemist and I believe very highly in the scientific method and I. I, I'm not sure whether this, you've got a screw loose or whatever, Kent, but somehow you've gotten this belief. Well, they've already proven through the scientific method the archaeologists <clears> have <throat> that Gobekli Tepe in Turkey is 12,000 years old at least, and they've only excavated 25% of it. What do you got to say? Well, now, that's interesting. If you're a chemist, then how about let's schedule a live debate on my program, Kent Hovind Official, and let's talk about that. I, I think if you, how, how did they determine the age of that? I'd like to see the specifics on that. It's not possible. First of all, 12,000 is, I don't think it's true, but that's nothing compared to 4.6 billion, which is what they're claiming the Earth is. These civilizations, they usually try to date them with carbon dating, which is based on real obvious assumptions. A freshman law student could tear up any carbon date in a court of law. You'd have to you'd have to assume that you know the initial content of the object. You'd have to assume it's always been consistent. You'd have to assume there's been no contamination. We know for sure that radiocarbon is still increasing in the atmosphere. That's been demonstrated over and over again. If radiocarbon is still increasing in our atmosphere, then you can't carbon date anything because you're you're taking today's percentage of radiocarbon, 0.000076, uh, 5%, and assuming that's what all animals started at. 
that's the problem. It's just simply not true. So yeah, I covered that in my video number seven for probably 30 minutes about all the serious flaws of carbon dating. And everybody I've debated on the topic would say, well, yeah, Kent's right. We can't, we can't carbon date things based on uh, radiocarbon dating or uranium dating or any dating method because uh, it's just real obvious fundamental assumptions. So I'd like to see how they dated that village you're talking about. Uh, they certainly, I would be, I'd be willing to bet money they used the totally flawed radiometric type dating methods based on obvious assumptions. Barry, thank you for the phone. Yeah, thank you for the phone call and the and the question as well. And I think that kind of comes down to the point, Kent. Um, you know, <clears throat> one of two things has to be happening: either uh, they're right in with this science, or their methods are incorrect. So it's got to be one of those two things, doesn't it? Just to be able to support, well, to be able to uh, and, you know justify. And it's bigger than that. Uh, some people want very badly for evolution to be true. So they can get rid of God. They don't want God telling them what to do. Well, okay, that that's their problem. If they don't want God telling them what to do, they can live, live their life how they want. But you certainly shouldn't say the Bible's been proven wrong because it never has been. Uh, and I'm not aware of anything. Um, but radioactive dating, as an example, they want badly to, to anything anything over six thousand. They will jump on like, whoa, hey, there's a way to prove the Bible's not true. And so. Uh, yeah, I've got 30 minutes worth of slides with documentation is, is, from all the major sources. Is it possible? This doesn't work. Kent, is it possible that um, the truth that lies somewhere in between? And hear me out for a second. Could it be that our interpretation of evolution, our interpretation of time, um, just can't, uh, the math doesn't work for us because the divine effort to create the earth and humanity isn't something that we can actually measure? Well, I'm, there's no question. I don't think the divine uh, being could fit in a human brain. I mean, our brain's only three pounds. So therefore, could, could, the, could these evolutionary si- signs, this this evidence of, that we call uh, evidence of evolution, could that have been a- the actual mechanism by which God, as, uh, as <clears throat> described in the Bible, actually did create what we see today as our world? Well, first of all, there is no evidence at all of any animal ever producing a different kind of offspring. So why why are we trying to why are we trying to blend a perfectly good Bible which has never been proven wrong with a dumb theory that's never been proven right? <laughs> Second, secondly, that would be a retarded God. Doesn't he know how to make it right first time? And he said very clearly the animals would bring forth after their kind. There are now seven thousand five hundred varieties of apples that have been bred and created around the world. Some are for drier climate. Some are for you know sweeter, some are more sour, some are tougher, some are firmer, whatever. 7,500 varieties of apples have been selectively bred by farmers around the world. They might have all had a common ancestor called an apple. So if God put in the original created apple the ability to produce you know, offspring that are different within limits, they're still apple, I think that's amazing. A human couple can have 20 kids and they're all different than each other. But they're still human. So the variations that we see, whether it's apples or humans or mosquitoes, those variations are limited to still the same kind. Now, the evolutionist, will just he just jumps all over that and says, aha, see these 7,000 varieties of apples? That proves apples and mosquitoes are related. Which <laughs> is absolutely dumb. Let's no, jump, it doesn't. Let's jump back to the phone lines. This is Dee in Greenville, South Carolina. Hi, Dee. Welcome to the show. Hi. Yeah, I have a question for your guest, and that is... Uh, I thought, according to the Bible, that uh, two of every animal on, on Earth was placed upon the ark. So why would the dinosaurs be left behind? Well, good question. They were not left behind. Uh, the word dinosaur means terrible lizard. It was made up in 1841, a uh, terrible reptile, by uh, Sir Richard Owen, I believe. So uh, reptiles never stop growing. Even today, you can Google it. Reptiles, lizards, snakes, etc., never stop growing. If you look uh, at the Bible, Genesis chapter 5, it says the people were living to be 900 years old. You know, Methuselah was 969. Adam was 930 when he died. Well, in the pre-flood world, before the flood destroyed everything, the people lived to be over 900. If reptiles could live to be 900 and never stop growing, they'd get 50 or 60 feet long. And that's the dinosaurs. They just had a different name for them. They called them dragons. 
because the word dinosaur wasn't made up. Noah did take two of every kind, actually seven of some, onto the ark. He would have taken dinosaurs. Probably being 600 years old when they built the ark, he'd be smart enough to know, hey, let's bring babies. Now, the biggest dinosaur egg ever found is smaller than a football. So you could bring two babies of everything on the ark. Why would you bring big elephants? Bring young ones, you know. Lots of common sense reasons for that. Less less uh, food, less poop to shovel, you know, et cetera. But, D, yeah, D, thanks for that very that, that insightful question. Appreciate that. Um, you know, one of the things that ha- that has bothered me uh, when you get into a discussion about evolution, first of all, is that people automatically um, assume it's it's fact, it's proven science, and at best, it's a theory. At best, it has yet to be proven, um, whether you believe it or not. But the other thing that bothers me is where are all the mistakes in evolution? Where are all the species, the, the you know, three-eyed, uh, four-armed, um, <coughs> three-footed, you know, the, 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 the quote-unquote uh, um, uh, mistakes in this, in this uh, quote-unquote evolutionary process? Well, that's a great question. Where are the transitions between anything? Right. Uh, they certainly can't use the fossils as anything. First of all, when you find fossils in the ground, all you really know is it died. You couldn't prove it had any children. And no fossils have been found, which are intermediary between any other kinds of animals. But even if there was something that looked like it was, you know, half dog, half chicken, there aren't any. But if there was, that wouldn't prove it's an intermediary. It might be some kind of extinct species. And you can't prove it had any children at all that lived. Right. So in a court of law, actually no fossils would count. They would all be thrown out categorically. Sorry, find find different evidence for your theory. No fossils count. You found bones in the dirt. Okay, big deal. No animals today are producing anything other than their kind. Why would you think this bone in the dirt could do it? When you have these discussions with um, the scientific community, <clears throat> what do they hang their hat on? Where is the what they would consider to be their ultimate proof that that what you're saying is not the way it happened and what they're saying is? It, it's always majority opinion. It's the same in a communist country. Go to North Korea and get up in a classroom and argue communism doesn't work. And they'll say, hey, all of the scientists in North Korea say it works. All of the economists in North Korea say communism works. The leader says communism works. Why would you stand up in our class and say communism doesn't work? Everybody knows it does. Here we are living in North Korea. Of course it works. Because anybody who disagrees gets shot or <laughs> sent to Siberia or whatever they sent in North Korea. So, how do you, how do you yeah, explain majority fe- opinion? How do you explain features on the earth that um, you know, geological features that that from what we understand are the processes that created them, it would take millions of years, like the Grand Canyon, for example. Well, Grand Canyon probably formed in a week. Uh, if you look at the topography of that area, the top of Grand Canyon is about 8,000 feet above sea level. Uh, the river starts cutting the canyon at Page, Arizona, uh, at where it's only less than 3,000 feet above sea level, 2,800 feet. Well, hold it. If, if it starts cutting at 2,800 feet, but the top of the ridge it's going to cut to is 8,000 feet above sea level, that's over a mile higher than where it starts cutting. Rivers don't flow uphill. If you plugged up Grand Canyon with dirt, just plug it up. That'd take a lot of dirt. But let's say you plug up the whole canyon, build a dam. The the Kaibab Plateau, which is what Grand Canyon cuts across, is it would be like a giant dam, and a lake would slowly fill in from the Colorado River. That lake would get five thousand feet deep and cover half of Colorado and Utah and New Mexico. I don't know if it got, maybe not Utah and Colorado if it covers New Mexico. Yeah, I think part of part of it would get in New Mexico. Who cares? Anyway. So you just follow follow the elevation lines from follow, trace out the eight thousand foot elevation line or the seven thousand foot elevation line. It'll make a gigantic lake. If there was this gigantic lake backed up, and all of a sudden it got deep enough from rainfall or whatever, and it started going over the top of the ridge, it would start washing out at the far end and wash its way backwards, like all dams when they wash out, they start at the far side and eat their way back. Once it gets back to the lake. Uh, the lake just goes roaring out of there. We it's Google dam break at Dinosaur Adventure Land. Let's um, let's jump to the, the phones right away here. This is Ben in Kansas City. Hey Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks for holding on. Hey, thanks for having me, man. What are your thoughts? 
so just kind of listening in earlier, and uh, you know, I try and I, I do keep an open mind. I am a I am a fan of the show. Um, I, I can't I can't say anything else besides the fact that I am also a man of science, however. Um, and just kind of listening in and hearing the word theory being tossed around, like oh, that you know, it's just a, it's just a theory. Um, I, I you know, it's just it's kind of uh, it kind of irks me just a little bit. Not not necessarily makes me mad by any means, but just it, it acts like as if theories aren't like a set, isn't some kind of result of consistent testing. I mean, here it's just a theory, but gravity is a theory. You know what I mean? But I don't see you guys jumping out of windows you know so well, i just wanted to see what ken had to say that, about that's that. a great point I'll, I'll let ken answer that's a great point but um i would just say <clears> this that uh you know gravity we know gravity exists we can see that gravity exists but we can't explain gravity yet so therefore there are several theories as to what gravity actually is we know we exist we know we're here and there are i guess several theories as to why we are here ken why don't you take it from there well, yeah, I think I could demonstrate gravity in a few seconds. You know, I'll drop, <laughs> drop my ink pen. Uh, you can see it. We cannot demonstrate the evolution theory, which says dogs and mosquitoes are related. It's never been demonstrated other than dogs produce dogs and mosquitoes produce mosquitoes. So if somebody wishes to believe otherwise, they can, but it's not part of science. It's not even part of the theory. A theory has to have some observable uh, you know, scientific evidence to back it up. And science is based on what we can observe, study, test, and demonstrate. And every farmer in the history of the world has demonstrated clearly that cows produce cows. There are simply no exceptions. But you can look at the charts in the biology textbooks, and they'll show a line connecting cows and mosquitoes to an amoeba. That's not science. It's, it's, I think it's plain silly. I, I think it's... Uh, uh, <laughs> I find it amazing that people can believe that, but they certainly have a right to believe it. But it's not, it's not part of science. And science has a long history of teaching things that are just dumb, and later on they're discovered, oh, no, that's not true. You know, George Washington was bled to death by his own doctors because of the stupid doc humors. They said, your blood is bad. Take your blood out. You'll get better. Um, it was in 1983, just what, 30 years ago, they, they, they were teaching that babies can't feel pain. They would do surgery on babies with no, no anesthetic because babies can't feel pain. That was our medical profession in 1983. So I love science. I'm not against science. But I think we need to be aware that science has a long history of being wrong, and they're certainly wrong about any animal ever being able to produce a different kind of offspring. Ben, that was a great yeah. Ben, that was a great question. Thank you. I want to move through these pretty quickly here. This is um, <clears throat> Pierre. Pierre is in New Orleans. Hey, Pierre, welcome, and thanks for hanging on. Um, I just wanted to say it's very refreshing to have a, uh, a fellow um, brother of faith, you know, that's on there that 100% believes the Bible. Because a lot of times when you're a Bible believing Christian and you, you know, you use the Bible as your litmus test, people look at you crazy and you know they they want to, you know, what I'm saying try to turn you away from that that um that level line of thinking. And, uh, you know, that, you know, that I use everything, you know, for the Bible. I use that as my litmus test. Well, thank you for those comments, Pierre. And I think that um, you probably find that refreshing, too, Kent. Well, yes. And uh, thank you, uh, Pierre. I'm probably Buffonce. Got a French you French name in New Orleans. Orleans. I thought maybe he spoke French. That's okay. Um, well, yeah, I think all we've ever observed is dogs produce dogs. There are no exceptions to that. And the Bible says the animals will bring forth after their kind. That says that 20 times in the first seven chapters. That's what science tells us. Cows produce cows. And the Bible tells us there was a worldwide flood. Well, that's the only way to explain continent-wide sediment layers, uh, limestone, all the, geo the, the, the so-called layers of the geologic column, all formed at one big flood. All over the world, there are petrified trees found standing up, connecting all these layers. Yet they tell the kids in school the layers are different ages. I say, guys, that's not possible. Trees don't stand up for millions of years waiting for the rocks to form around them. They're called polystrata fossils. I've got a whole bunch of pictures of them on my let's, uh, um, seminar series. Let's take, Dr. Dino. Let, let's take one more call here, Kent, uh, and then we'll, we'll let you go because we promise we don't need to keep you for an hour. This is James in Kansas City. Hey, James, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for the call. Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask your guests uh, in regards to what they had mentioned earlier about Gobekli Tepe and the 
the knowledge that we've discovered, you know, humans of gigantic proportion with abnormal skeletons under skulls. Uh, I was wondering if that possibly made reference to the biblical line about discovery or giants uh, living on the earth in those days, and if maybe that these were a pre-Adamic race and and the that, structures that would, as well. That would be my theory as well. I don't think we could prove that. I mean, it, it's that some really huge skeletons have been found, like up in the ten foot range, and even more. They found a skeleton in Turkey that's probably fourteen feet tall. I've got a replica of the thigh bone in my museum here at the Dinosaur Adventure Land. So the Bible says in Genesis 6 there were giants in the earth in those days. And I think there are legends all over the world of really gigantic people. I don't know how big they were, but, you know, Robert Wadlow was nearly nine feet tall in St. Louis, and that was just, you know, 60 years ago. So, yeah, I think uh, there have been some really, really big people. I covered a lot of pictures and evidence for that on video number two. Of my, uh, just go to drdino.com or you can watch my seminar for free online. Uh, Kent Hovind Official is our YouTube channel, and uh, or you can call 855 Big Dino and uh, extension one if you want to order a set of our videos. But we, I use over 10,000 pictures in PowerPoint. And I try to document everything. Yeah, I, a short answer yes, there were giants in the earth in those days. Not only giant animals, giant insects. I mean, dragonflies, 50 inch wingspan. What was the, what was that? that was, uh, what was the follow up question, James? I was wondering if that possibly pointed to a pre-Adamic species. No, I don't believe there's anything pre-Adamic, because the Bible says Eve is the mother of all living, and there's no need for it. It would be pre-Noah, pre-flood, but not pre-Adam. The Bible I says see. clearly that Jesus said that Adam was the first man, uh, and Adam brought death into the world. Nothing died before Adam. I do not believe in a pre-Adamic race. I James, do believe in before the flood, people were huge. James, thank you for that great question. We appreciate you calling and listening. Um, we're going to have to let you go here now because we promised another guest. We give them some time as well. But fascinating dis- discussion, um, Kent. You've already given out your website and uh, your YouTube channel, and I'm assuming that those are the best places for anyone who wants to follow up on this discussion <clears throat> for them to go and yes. maybe maybe even find a way to debate you. Oh, I'd be thrilled. I've had 184 debates, and I'll take on 10 more. <laughs> Great. Uh, don't go to drdino.com. All right. Well, thanks for your time. We appreciate you being here tonight. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Our guest in the second part of the show is Kieran Woodhouse. Kieran is a paranormal investigator and an author of a book called An Introduction to Paranormal Investigation. Kieran, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It is an honor to have you here tonight. Hi. How are you doing? Great. Now, where are you exactly? You're in the U.K., right? Uh, yeah, so I'm in uh, the West Midlands, so it's pretty much smack bang in the middle of England. And it's uh, got to be early in the morning for you, too. <laughs> <laughs> I got up at half five, but we've got a baby due in like three weeks, so oh, I think t- I've got to get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, then this is good practice. Um, yeah, definitely. So uh, at what point did you um, get your curiosity for all things paranormal? We all did at some point. When did you get yours? Um, I grew up with it. I mean, I grew up in a house, uh, well, a flat that was haunted by my mum's nan. Um, she used to come and rearrange the furniture, rearrange the ornaments as to how she would like it back when she was alive. So we'd go out on an evening, we'd come home, and the whole living room would be rearranged. And I just remember my mum kind of speaking out loud to this invisible person, um, telling her to stop it, and it wasn't funny. And I guess growing up in a situation where um, seeing living people interacting with, to a child's mind, nothing, it kind of piqued my interest as who were they talking to and what is it that's banging the child gate at the top of the stairs to tell my mum that she hasn't locked it properly or, you know, who is it that's doing this? So growing up in that situation really piqued my interest. How how often would that happen where you would go out of the house or... Overnight or whatever it happened to be, all of a sudden you'd you'd have things rearranged. I remember it distinctly three times. Um, We moved out of that house when I was eight. So, I mean, my memory, I guess I could start remembering things from about four or five, as most people can. So throughout the three years, there were three distinct memories of it, of the furniture moving. Um, The child gate would happen regularly. Um, If my mum hadn't locked it properly, I think it was a faulty... Uh, latch on it and if it hadn't locked properly um, she'd slam it to say you know me and my brother could fall down the stairs um, so that would happen quite a lot 
And when you move, and you and when you moved out of the home, um, your nan or I guess we would say grandmother did not um, did not follow you. Um, no, and that that's actually a funny story. We moved to another house, and once we'd settled in, my dad, you know, contacted his parents and my my nan and granddad, and said, you know, we've moved house. This is where we're living now. And my granddad couldn't believe it because it's the very house that he was born in, and we didn't know that. So they, my granddad came around to our house and, you know, you could see like the, the wonderment on his face looking around, clearly imagining it how it was when he used to live there. Um, and that house is now haunted by, we think, my dad's auntie. So it's almost my mum's nan thinks, oh, hang on a minute, this is, uh, this is my dad's family now. I, ca- I can't really go there because I'm stepping on toes. <laughs> Um, so you, at a very young age, developed a curiosity in these unexplained things, phenomena. We call them paranormal phenomena. Um, but um, you, at, at some point, decided you were going to start investigating and actually trying to take a more scientific approach into figuring out what was going on. When did that happen? That happened um, probably about six years ago. It was, it's, I'd always, like I said, I'd always had an interest in it, and we used to watch TV programs and things like that. Um, and about six years ago or so, there was a boom in the UK of paranormal teams um, going out and, you know, charging guests to go with them. I think it was off the back of things like Most Haunted and Ghost Hunters and things like that. And so my my now wife brought me a, a, a ticket to go on a local ghost hunt, and it was at our local castle. And I went along and thoroughly enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, this is quite addictive, actually. Because it doesn't matter what you find, you always want to find the next thing. Um, you know, so if you if, if you have a stone thrown at you, which we did at, at this particular investigation, you know, you think, well, I want to go and have two stones stones thrown at me now, and you keep going because you keep looking for the next piece of evidence, um, and that's what happened. And I eventually went on an investigation with a team, who after about four or five investigations asked me to join their team, and. That was it, you know. The rest is history. And about two or three years ago, I joined this team, and and I investigate with these guys now. I go out on my own. I've got a separate group of of um, friends that you know all similar interests. We go out and investigate as well. So it's just trying to get in as much investigating as possible. Do you have um, an understanding of the differences in the attitudes between folks in the UK versus folks in the states? and their attitude toward this type of phenomena. Is it any different? Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I've, I've obviously done radio interviews with, with, with American hosts, um, and I, I've on my own podcast I've spoken to some American mediums and, and, and things like that, and it seems quite similar. Um, I think I think that the problem is with, with, with England particularly, because it's such a small country, it's now becoming quite dominated by two or three really quite big um, investigation companies. And, and they seem to be really dominating the market. And it's making it really quite difficult for, um, you know, us lesser known or more amateur groups or anyone that's looking to start out. It makes it difficult for these guys to get into locations or, you know, to, to have a better understanding of what ghost hunting is because, um, like I say, the market share is so dominated by these these companies. Given the uh, amount of history that the UK holds, um, does that add to the possibility of hauntings? You know, we look at a building here and it's old if it's 100 years old. You look at a building yeah. <laughs> in the UK and, you know, five, six, seven thousand years isn't isn't unheard of. And, and is it does that make any difference? Um, well, the house I'm in is is not far off a hundred years old, I don't think, um, and and I don't think there's anything here. I've lived here for about two to three years now, and I've never come across anything really. Um, the one thing I found is that if a place looks haunted, it it probably isn't. Um, <laughs> you know, it, the, the typical I don't know kind of abandoned house with smashed windows and everyone thinks, right. oh, I bet there's a few ghosts in there. We find that, I mean, the best investigations we've done are in public swimming baths and mm. things like that, um, pubs, which are still active. Kieran, when did you decide to write the book? Um, it was, I kind of I fell into going out and lecturing, so I give presentations around the country to various groups, and so I had to compile this kind of 
information. And whenever I'd go, people would say, have you got a book? You know, is there anything you want to sell while you're here? And I thought, you know, it can't be that hard to write a book because all I'm going to be doing is putting my experiences and my presentation into words and, and, and making a book. So um turns out it was a little bit harder than that. And it took me about six months or so on and off. And, um, yeah, so I just thought, you know, I'd, I'd really like to get down in words what I'm talking about at my presentations and stuff. So that was the plan. And is the book designed to offer an entry level, uh, basically an introduction to people who have not done any ghost hunting before? Uh, yeah, so it's it's someone described it as a dummy's guide to ghost hunting, <laughs> um, and you know when they said that, I thought should I be insulted by that? But um, no, it, it, I, I get what they're saying. Um, yeah, I mean each chapter is basically on, on a different piece of equipment that we use, why we use it, how it's used, uh, and then towards the end of the book, there's some stories, um, including the one I've spoke about earlier with my mum's nan, um, experiences that I've had on investigations and other uh, colleagues have had. So it's kind of like a, a crossover between, um, you know, if someone's just interested in ghost stories, they can read it. If someone's looking at starting up, they can read it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just a good kind of start-up for anyone looking to, to, to get into it. You know, not everybody understands the um, value of this kind of work. So if someone came up to you and said, um, why would I want to go ghost hunting? Why would I want to do a paranormal investigation? What would you tell them? Um, for me, it's just it's it's the curiosity. You know, it's the wanting to know. As, as a species, we 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 kind of strive to know the unknown. And I'd, I'd say to them, you know, that for me, I've made some very good friends through it. Some very very good friends, be that guests or crew members. Um, we get to go to some great locations that we wouldn't normally go to. And even if nothing happens throughout the night, you know, some of these places we go to with the architecture and, you know, the interior, they're, they're fantastic places to go to just, just to see. Um, and you get to see them in a different light. You know, you get to see them at, at three o'clock in the morning when there aren't any other guests walking around or visitors walking around the, the you know, the, the stately home. And you get to just have it all to yourself, which is, you know, it's quite nice in itself. Um, so for me, it, it, there is the social aspect of it, but it's also just trying to find answers. You know, the, the answers that I guess we've been asking for centuries. What what happens after we die? Someone comes up and says, OK, I'm going to go on my first ghost hunt. Uh, I'm going to go with a group. What equipment do I need? What do you say? Um, for me, the best piece of equipment you can use is yourself. Um, because, you, you know, you can trust yourself, you know, you haven't got faulty batteries like some equipment might have, and um, and as long as you kind of look after yourself and you haven't eaten or drank, um, you know, energy drinks or sugary things throughout, throughout the day, um, what you perceive should be quite honest, and, and you should be able to believe what you're seeing and what you're hearing. So yourself is the most important thing. Um, and then beyond that, um, I, for me, it's things that kind of reach out into into the into the worlds that we can't see. So infrared cameras because it shows parts of the light spectrum that we can't see. Uh, ultraviolet lights, ultraviolet torches are quite good because um, again, it, we 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 tend to see shadows in, in an ultraviolet torch light that we wouldn't see in a normal light, which is quite interesting. Um, so it it's. There are, I mean, and these are standard tools. You know, most ghost hunters use these. Um, I just the typical K two EMF meter is okay, but I can't. I struggle to kind of see how much you can trust that, if that makes sense. Um, in terms of when it's being affected with, it could be anything. It could be electrical wiring in the house. Um, someone's phone isn't on flight mode, and they're getting a text through. It could be anything like that. So I try to stick to equipment that you know you can trust as much as possible. When you've investigated, and I'm sure you've used several different and a variety of equipment, several different pieces of equipment and a variety of it, um, what is some of the evidence that you're most proud of that you've collected, and what was the equipment used to gather it? Um, some of the best is with spirit boards or Ouija boards, as they're known. Um, we 
we we did one and it was at the, the swimming baths that I mentioned earlier and there was myself and another crew member and a guest with us and um, the guest, after some questions, the guest seemed to think that he was talking to his dad. So I asked him to remove his hand from the glass, which just left me and the other crew member. We didn't know this guy and he continued to ask questions. What street did I grow up on? How did uh, what was my mom's name? How did you die? What's the name of my eldest child? And every single question was right. Um, and I struggle to explain that because even if it's not a spirit that's that's moving the glass around the board, we're now talking about some kind of telekinesis <laughs> thing going on right, where he's yeah. putting the answers in our mind. And, and either is just as interesting as the next. Um, so... And that's happened a couple of times where person being affected has taken their hands off the board, and yet we've still got answers that they're to the questions they're asking absolutely right. And I struggle to explain that. Um, we also got some interesting EVPs. So there was one instance where um, we were in two separate rooms next to each other, and in the one room we heard a growl, and it was quite sinister. You know, you'd think, "Oh, that sounds quite evil." And in the room next to us, they were using an EVP recorder and they picked up the word hello. So that is kind of what started me into thinking, is it possible that these things are operating on frequencies outside of our, um, you know, visible range, outside of our hearing range? So when we hear a growl, it was actually someone saying hello, but to our ears, we could only pick up the growl. Um, so that, that was quite interesting. Um, we've also had EVPs come through on phones. So we've had people's phones ring and when they've answered, um, it's come through as, um, it was a little child saying, well, well, I really hold, want on, to go hold, home. hold on a second. This is the first I've heard of this kind of phenomena. You've actually had the phone ring and when you answered yes. it, it, yeah. it was an EVP. So we, yeah. So we were in a cellar. So it was about half one in the morning. Uh, and, and I detail this in the book. It was half one in the morning, roughly. We were in a cellar, and everyone's phone was on flight mode. And this person, this lady's phone starts ringing. So she gets the phone out of her pocket, and it says private number. And, you know, she says, well, I'm not answering that. And the first thing we all thought was, well, you should have it on flight mode, you know. So we were a bit annoyed at, at, at this person. Sure. Turns out, turns out her phone was on flight mode, but she ignored the phone call. It then rang through to a second person. So I'm thinking, whoever's called that person can't get in touch with them, so she's trying her friend. These guys didn't know each other, so that can't be possible. Again, she ignored the phone. Eventually, it rang for a third time. They've picked up the phone, says private number, phone's on flight mode, we're in a cellar, there's no signal anyway. And we're, everyone's like, just answer the phone. So they swipe to answer, and it instantly comes onto loudspeaker, which is interesting in itself. And all we heard was what sounded like a little child saying, I really want to go home now. Oof. And um, and it was in the broadest, like my accent basically is known as, as a black country accent for, for the area that I'm in. And it was the broadest, you know, it, it was it was so broad. And some people thought it was a girl. I personally thought it was a boy. And we've since done some research and found that there were children buried within the vicinity of where we were. And, yeah, I mean, even just talking about it now, actually, it's got the hairs on the back yeah. of my neck. Yeah, you know? mine too. Um, so it's really quite an interesting encounter because there were so many things that, that went against the norm. You know, phone ringing on flight mode. We're in a cellar. It's at the early hours of the morning. Phone automatically goes onto loudspeaker. And then we get what sounds like a child wow. telling us that they really want to go home. Reminds me of that Twilight Zone episode. I don't know if you've seen it where the uh, grandmother is calling the grandson after she passed away on the toy phone. And uh, uh, that that episode is one of my favorites. Um, what are spirits? What are these ghosts that we are seeing and hearing from when we are out investigating? What are they? Um, for me, that that they, it's consciousness. So I, I mean, I, I believe that we are, we operate in a um, illusory holographic world that is created by frequency. And I mean, I always liken it to a radio station. So if you're listening to Radio X, um, that doesn't mean that Radio Y doesn't exist. It's still there, but your radio station just isn't tuned into that frequency. Um, and then when you switch over to Radio Y, Radio X still exists. You've just changed your tuning. And some people that see ghosts, such as mediums and things like that, 
might have the ability to tune into X and Y at the same time and listen to both stations. So for me, it's just it's consciousness that's operating on a different frequency level. So we have to tune in in order to find them. And that's what I talk about, you know, with the, the growl that we heard with our ears, but the, the recorder picked up hello. Or when you use infrared cameras and you see things on the camera, but you can't see it with your human eye. And it's because they're operating outside of what we call visible light. So if we can see 0.05% roughly of the light spectrum, you have to question what's existing in the remaining 99.95%. So that's a lot of stuff that's existing around us that we can't see and we can't hear. And it doesn't mean that there's nothing there. In fact, the law of probability states that there's quite probably something there. And it could be that spirits, even UFOs, if, if you could understand that they're interdimensional, not interplanetary, um, Bigfoot and other kind of paranormal species could all be operating on different frequency levels. We, um, I know that you have another commitment and you're going to have to leave here. And we didn't get a chance to talk about your UFO encounter, um, but maybe we can have you on another time. We can get into that. Uh, where can people get the book? It's called An Introduction to Paranormal Investigation. Yeah, so if you just go on Amazon and, and, and search for um, Kieran Woodhouse, or if you just type the title into Amazon, it's there. You can contact me at kieran.woodhouse at gmail.com if you would like a copy sent personally by myself. Or if you go on Facebook, I have a, a group called The Paranormal Paradigm. If you search that on Facebook, you can contact me through there as well. Kieran, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate your time tonight. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You know, I always find it very interesting to see how people dig their heels in on any discussion like that. I, you know, I find myself more interested in hearing how someone can try to convince me of the other side than I do to try to fight the other side. I, you know, it's, it's opening my mind to those ideas that I think is more rewarding than just blatantly say, oh, you're, you're, you can't be possibly be right. I, am, I, am I off on that? I mean, I, I oh. kind of like hearing what someone who disagrees with me says and why oh, they think it. that. I love it. Yeah, I agree. I think we're, we're like-minded in that sense. I want to have the conversation, you know? Um, I mean, how about when, when somebody knocks on your door um, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I mean, sometimes I don't have the time, but sometimes I'll, I want to talk to them. I want to know what their point of view is. You know? Yeah, I don't want to talk. I don't usually have that conversation. <laughs> well, it's a matter of time. It, anything, it is but. time. It's like I just don't have the time. Um, and I've got, I've got my own re- religious beliefs. I don't, I don't, I've got, I'm settled there. I don't, need, sure. I don't need to be swayed in any directions. I'm pretty comfortable where I am. But I love having the conversation. And I think, you know, in any of these topics, things, that we think are maybe settled why well you know i gotta tell you i uh, i am not settled on any of that uh-huh. um i don't know why i don't know you know i don't i don't have a particularly good foundation to have the debate myself right but i'm interested in the debate and um you know there are some things about uh what we've been taught that i have real serious questions about sure um it you know you have to take a lot of that on faith just like you have to take a lot of the other side on faith sure for right either so um, that's why I get a little little head scratchy when people don't want to hear the the other side. I just well, right when anybody is so entrenched in their position that they're they can't hear a new idea, you know. Um, but you know, I, I, yeah, it's it's always a stimulating conversation. Um, these debates sound very interesting, actually. Uh, that he was talking about. Yeah, and I, I guess his YouTube channel has a bunch of that stuff on there, so if anybody's right. interested it's, in seeing it's, it. It's uh, Kent Hovind Official. If you search that, you'll find H-O-V-I-N-D. You'll find um, all yeah. sorts of content. The other thing that makes me curious about this discussion is that, you know, the more we talk to what we would consider to be scientists on the cutting edge, not mm-hmm. of not of evolution or not of not of that particular discipline, but of these other things like quantum science and dimensional travel, they're starting to... Uh, come up with theories and ideas and information and evidence that may point to some type of greater purpose. Sure. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is, and I don't think anybody does at this point. Right. But part of science is moving in that direction now. Sure. And another interesting arena is archaeology. There's a lot of unsettled issues in archaeology a lot of conflicting evidence a lot of conflicting interpretations and of course when we're talking about something you know in the range of 10,000 or depending on your perspective 6,000 yeah uh, years old you it's all interpretation right but um 
Yeah, and we've actually got a guest coming up soon to talk about about that. And you know, Barry mentioned um, uh, what is it? Go go go! Blah blah. Tepley. I can't remember. <laughs> right. Go cap. Go. Oh, I'm not going to try to butcher it. But anyway, uh, one that ancient temple, and um, we'll, we're having a guest to talk about that. But that that's an area where there's a lot of new thinking and a lot of new interpretation um, and a big debate. Uh, of what is what are the origins of these things? What, right. what's ha- where well, do they I mean, come from? Part of the flaw here is if 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 we're flawed in our science, then our then our conclusions are flawed, and um, you know, so that that I guess that's what Kent was talking about. Um, I did want to say one thing though. Uh, we had several phone calls, and all, with the exception of one, all of the calls were, um, I guess, contrary to what Kent's position was. And everyone was very, very respectful, and I appreciate that. Uh, that's the way to have a discussion. That's the spirit of, of, of the show, really, that, that respectful uh, conversation. It is. Okay, so tomorrow night we've got, uh, who's coming up? John Sumpel tomorrow night, producer of the upcoming film. But you said it might not be John, it might be somebody else. Or it might, yeah, we're, we're trying to nail down which producer, but we will have someone from the film to talk about the film. And the film is called Extraordinary The Seeding, and it'll, it will discuss uh, reproduction experiments carried out as part of an alien hybrid breeding program, which a lot of people say they have knowledge of and suspicions of. Yeah, and the film interviews a lot of these people who say that they have been impregnated um, had the fetuses removed by some sort of non-human entity. Next week, we've got Rob Young coming on Monday night. He's an author and an adventurer. He'll be talking about the Cloud Warriors of Peru, Poisons from the Jungle, and his own paranormal experiences. And then Tuesday, excited about this one, too, Chris Newby, a science writer, will shed new light on the genesis of Lyme disease and its Cold War origins. Is Lyme disease a biological weapon gone wrong? Or is it just a natural virus that uh, has become rampant? Um, I guess we'll get some information on Tuesday night with Chris. I guess we will. Yeah. Okay. That's going to do it for tonight. Thanks for being here, everybody. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll see you tomorrow. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.